Action Park Media. Ryan Leaf, the starting quarterback for the Chargers. In the rush before the draft, the Chargers had dismissed some warning signs about Ryan Leaf, including a test that classified players by personality type and found his was ill-suited to be an NFL quarterback. Ryan Leaf signed the big contract, $11 million signing bonus. They gave up a lot for him. I thought somewhere along the line he'd just come in to somebody, the coach, somebody say, you know what, I've screwed up, but it never happened. This was a guy who was woefully immature and not ready for the spotlight, not ready for responsibility or leadership. Three games after the Kansas City debacle, the Chargers fired Gilbride. And Leaf's play continued its downward spiral. He came in as if he was the, the savior for the organization. It was really disturbing, you know, because you could see it coming and thought, wow. Every time I step on the football field, I just feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world to be able to play the game I love and get paid for it. Um, when, I, when I start playing the game of football for just the paycheck, that's time for me to get out, because I can find a job that I'd love to do then. You're now listening to Bust, the Ryan Leaf story. Kevin Gilbride, our head coach, fired from the San Diego Chargers. So now they've signed a rookie quarterback who's struggling, and they think the best thing to do is to fire the head coach that he had formed a pretty good bond with. I still can't get over some of the decision-making that the San Diego Chargers ownership did during my tenure there. You know, we had to hire a new coach. And they hired a fucking pussy. And Mike Riley, he came from Oregon State, absolutely unwilling to be confrontational in any single way. You know, from the get-go, I looked at him like, this is, this is not, this is not going to go well for anybody. And it didn't, and it never did. It never did. That offseason brought a lot of turmoil simply because my unwillingness to compromise and be a part of the team. One of those things that I thought would change things, especially in the city of San Diego, was when I ran into this woman named Nikki Lucia. She was a Chargers cheerleader and one of the most drop-dead gorgeous women I've ever seen in my life. Just beautiful, Italian, dark-haired, dark skin, and everybody loved her. She was on the cover of all the the calendars, and I remember the first time I met her, it was all about, like, I need to have that, first off. That was the first thing. But then, like anything, the infatuation begins, and then the idea of, like, if I'm with her and everybody loves her, everybody's ultimately got to love me because they're like, she wouldn't be with an asshole, you know? She would be with a good guy. And so there was motive in that. Now, we became really close, and we became friends, and I proposed, like, immediately. It was really good for my image, and that's what started it, and I thought it was a fix to what ailed me. And for a while, it was. You know, I think it calmed the the seas a little bit. I didn't like training there. I thought the, the strength and conditioning staff were really juniors guys, and I felt like they were laughing at me, and... <laughs> I just, I felt very uncomfortable being at work. So I went and started training with my old trainer up in Newport Beach, which allowed for a whole different area of circumstances and, and things to do in, in Newport Beach that, that were different for me. I trained, yes, but I also got to be, you know, whoever I wanted to be up there as well. 
Uh, I didn't go into the facility. Our first mini camp, they call it voluntary, but you know, they're mandatory. I was down in Orlando being a part of the Children's Miracle Network telethon. You know, it was a way for me to like justify being away from the facility doing some good. So I didn't show up there. I mean, the starting quarterback going into his second season after a horrific rookie year isn't at the mini camp to practice and try to lay the groundwork with a new head coach. I mean, I, I do this for a living now. I'm an analyst. And if I heard this story, I would be in my analyst seat going, what in the fuck is this person doing? He is an idiot. And that's how everybody else was viewing me. And when I heard those comments, like, what the fuck's wrong with him? He's an idiot. Again, I just absorbed it and used it as fuel to try to win in some different way. You know, my response back to anybody who was critical of this, I I think was such a, a asinine thing was like, well, you don't care about dying kids, do you? I think that's really was one of my responses to somebody, like to a reporter. Why aren't you practicing? I said, you don't give a fuck about a dying kid? I mean, it, it's it, the tone of it, too, in my voice is so palpable even now. Like I can taste it on my tongue. That was my off season, hoping that we're going to get to a good place. And at one of those mini camps that I did make it to, I jump on a fumbled snap. The ball kind of rolls along my right elbow and my shoulder kind of lifts up over the top of it. And I felt this, this twinge and this, this tweak in my shoulder. And it was uncomfortable. It was the last day of minicamp before we got a, you know, a few weeks break before training camp starts. And uh, of course, I went and told the trainer, but I didn't specify how, how significant I thought it was. But this shows you how uncommitted I was to playing quarterback in the NFL because I would go away for the next whatever it was, three or four or five weeks before training camp would start. I'd go to my home in, in my lake house up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I don't pick up a football for five weeks. I'm about to go into the second season of my NFL career. I don't even pick up a football to throw one around. Because if I did, if I would have picked a football up and chose to throw it, I would have known immediately that my shoulder was fucked. Instead, I just play a bunch, have a bunch of fun up at the lake, stay out in the sun, drink a lot of beer, play a lot of golf, hang with my buddies. That's what I did. And when training camp came, I showed up on the first day and literally probably the second or third pass into training camp of my second season, I make a throw. What has happened and what had happened to my shoulder is I had torn my labrum and we didn't know it because of course I didn't pick up a ball for those weeks leading into the camp. And the labrum, what it does is it attaches to the back of your rotator cuff and it decelerates your shoulder. So when you're a thrower, when you throw, uh, it's the ligament that allows your shoulder to stop, to decelerate. When it's gone, it can't. So there's nothing stopping your shoulder from moving forward. And it's incredibly painful. And as a thrower, you you can't exist without your labrum. We go get an MRI. We see that the labrum's torn. My second season is gone. It's over. And it's the first time that I saw some mortality around my football career. I remember my dad was down there, and I was almost crying outside the facility I asked him, will I ever play again? I mean, it was the first time I had an honest conversation with myself, like, okay, this is the only thing I've ever had. This is the only thing that will actually let me be loved by everybody if I'm a if I'm a great football player. And is it gone now? Is that gone?
and I went and had the surgery. They repaired it, and there was fear of me being placed on injury reserve and being away from the team and losing all contact and losing that connection with the team. So they did not put me on IR. They kept me on the active roster, which is a huge thing because you're using up a whole roster spot for somebody who can't contribute, who can't play. They didn't want to lose me. They were fearful of that. And so I was there all the time. I was working out. I was rehabbing, going through the process. And, you know, Jim Harbaugh had come on as the starting quarterback. Eric Kramer was the backup. Uh, So you had a huge veteran presence at the quarterback position through that season. And, you know, I continued to watch it play out. And every week we played and I didn't play. And the conversation was, you know, was Leaf ever going to add up to anything? And I'm watching Peyton Manning in year two start to ascend to what he would become, right? They went from a 3-13 and 13 team to, I really think, I think it was the biggest turnaround. I think they went to 13-3 and three in year two. It was absolutely a complete 180. And so I was watching this play out in real time, and I can't do a thing, right? I'm on my ass. Thing. We played at Arrowhead where it was, for whatever reason, Arrowhead seems to be the, the, the absolute downfall for me. I'm not even playing in this game. You know, after we got beat there, I mentioned something to to Coach Riley as we're getting on the bus. I'm like, let's get back. The shoulder had come along pretty well, and we were thinking maybe maybe we could salvage this year and I could actually play late in the year. There was a story I was out with some people in Kansas City the night before the game, drinking and, and having a good time, and and said some stupid shit, and a reporter overheard it and stuff like that. So that was a big story the next week, and I was just like, fuck this, I need to get out of here. So then I said, let's fly up to Montana. So as we were about to go I had to finish up a workout and I was running and my shoulder just felt uncomfortable I was running doing this thing so I walked off um, and didn't finish the workout with the rest of my team and as we were in the hallway with the general manager Bobby Bethard he confronts me about it why don't you why aren't you finishing your workout with your teammates and just like anything else in my life when confronted with anything my response is intimidation right so this old I call him an old man. I don't know how old he was at the time. He, he felt like he was incredibly old, you know. Maybe he's mid-60s or something like that. And he's tiny. He's not a big guy at all. And I just start motherfucking him up and down, screaming at him about how if he doesn't fucking like it, then trade me, you son of a bitch, is kind of what I said. And then I just leave the facility. I go get on a private plane with with my fiance and my friends, and we fly to Montana or just to... I, I just wanted to get away. I needed to relax. Well, we're up there and my agent calls me. You know, this is before the internet and and breaking news really uh, existed, but it's starting to kind of leak out. My agent calls me and it's like, well, uh, they've they've suspended you for conduct detrimental to the team and they're going to go after the rest of your signing bonus, Ryan, which was about, I don't know, four and a half million dollars. So I was suspended for four weeks, so I couldn't be around the facility. I had to rehab off site. But... It's just like me in a year where I'm not even part of the team or even playing to get fucking suspended. That's like, that's so me. That makes perfect sense to me now. Like, dude, you, you can take a shitty situation and fuck it up so much worse. It's always been the case for me. Like, I can't, I'm just not satisfied with being an absolute fuck up. I need to make it worse. So year two was just a complete loss. Just a complete loss. Nothing got better I pushed myself further away. I didn't know if I was going to actually be able to play football anymore. The surgery supposedly went well. I didn't feel like I was getting back to who I was as a as a talent. And the season was over. 
when you don't have football to occupy you, to go out and compete and win, it can feel like forever. And it just felt like the offseason drug and drug and drug on. Nothing changed. I didn't feel like the doctors were helping me well enough, so I went down to Birmingham, Alabama for a second opinion on my shoulder. It's what I needed to focus on my shoulder. I got in shape. I showed up at training camp, and I walk in. The first guy I see is our fullback, and he's like, ah, I fucking told everybody you were going to show up in shape. Like, no one believed it. No one thought it was possible, and I did. And the shoulder felt good. They started giving me some reps, and I was back at it, and I was competing, and I was up against a young guy out of college named Moses Moreno, who was a local kid who went to Colorado State and had a very successful college career, and then Jim Harbaugh, who was there in year two. And I absolutely went out and dominated and won won the job. And everything was trending in the right direction. I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It read, Back from the Brink. I had went into the Atlanta Falcons game, the third preseason game of the year, which usually develops into what your starters are going to be. I opened the game nine for nine with a touchdown pass, and it was a no-brainer for Mike Riley, the head coach, to name me the starter. There was good things said by the head coach. There was good things said by Junior Seau and the leaders of the team and and how I've come about and come, come around And after those first two horrible years. And away we went. And the opener was at Oakland on an incredibly hot day up in the Bay Area. And as always, I'm the king of the preseason. I could be a fucking Hall of Famer for the preseason, right? Because it's not real. Teams don't prepare for you. The regular season's a different animal. And we struggled offensively again. Defense was really good, but we found a way to figure it out. And we were up at the end of the game. Rich Gannon and that that Oakland Raiders team find a way to score late, and we lost the opener. I played horribly. We came back the next week at home and played the New Orleans Saints. That game went very similarly. Decent. I threw a couple touchdown passes. We went up late in the game. The defense allowed the Saints to come down the field and score right before the time expired, and we were 0-2 out the gate. And I remember it was the day after the game, so it was Monday morning. I was driving in to to get some work done and to lift and watch film. And on the radio, I hear that I've been benched. So this was the confrontation part of things with Mike Riley that didn't exist, right? I had to hear that I was no longer the starting quarterback on the radio and ultimately in the newspaper and not from my head coach. And he couldn't tell me face-to-face. And I remember when I got to the facility, I walked up those stairs and it was like the scene in the movie, right? You just, I'm going to fuck this guy up. This is what's, this is how it's happening. This is how I'd always dealt with shit. And I was this big badass. But I had, had I really ever been in a, a real fight? It was just always been me being Mr. Fucking Tough Guy is what it's been. And I walk into his office and I'm, these are my bosses, right? These are my bosses. Bobby Bethard, the general manager of the team, the head coach of the team. I just walk into his office and dr- undress him in front of, I don't even know who's there. His secretary, who knows? Maybe his fucking kids were in the room and I'm still just, you know, calling him a piece of shit and what the fuck's his problem. And in the moment, in my mind, I was like, there's a balcony hanging over his office there. I'm like, I'm going to fucking take him and throw him off the top of this balcony is what I'm going to do. 
Who knows if I black out? What if I fucking tried to do that? Maybe I did. You should ask him if I tried to throw him off the balcony of the Chargers facility. I don't know. But I'm benched. I'm done. And I shut it down. You couldn't have hurt me more. Because a couple weeks later, the guy they placed in to replace me gets hurt. And I'm placed back in the game. And I remember talking to the media afterwards and they're asking is this your team again Ryan and I'm like it ain't my fucking team it's Moses' team I'm just a fucking filler here and I remember saying that in the press conference like it's such a angry vile reaction to a simple question what's the answer in that moment if you're doing right here your answer is you know I hope so I, I, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to get another chance to be the leader of this team and I'm going to do everything I can to make, make the most of it. My answer is like, the fuck it is. It's fucking Moses' team. I'm just the fucking backup. Just what, a, what, a, what an asshole. And everybody, everybody in the world gets to see it. Because it's not private. It's public. I get thrown back in the game. We're playing Seattle at home. I'm having a pretty decent game. I throw an interception. I go to run them down to tackle them. I get blindsided. I land on my wrist, and it absolutely just shatters it. And now my third season is pretty much gone. And now when I would throw, I would lose control of direction and accuracy, and and a lot of times my wrist would pop out, and I'd have to slam it against my thigh pad to get it back into place. Wasn't incredibly painful at the time, but it limited me in my talent of what I was really good at. They had to wrap it up and tape it and knew at the end of the year that I was probably going to have to have some sort of surgery. I was named the starter late in the year because of the injuries and they wanted to ultimately, this was the third year, my contract was a five-year deal. They were like, okay, we have to know. If this. We have to have an idea if this guy's the guy because we just don't have enough data. And I played all right. You know, I had uh, a 300-yard passing game at Mile High Stadium with three touchdowns. We, we didn't win. The, our team went 1-15 that year. The only game we won was a game I started against uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. The last team in the NFL to get a win. 17-16, the Chargers edge the Chiefs here at Qualcomm. It would be my fourth win in my career after winning three in my first six games my rookie year and the season ended and uh, we didn't hear much Uh, the exit interviews were like you know you were pretty much a fuck up again Ryan and we don't know what we're going to do with you I wasn't concerned I was just like again you know five year contract you know I'm going to get married here February 17th the season ended January 10th right so you know, Super Bowl ends, we get married, we head out on our honeymoon, kind of private boat in Tahiti, Polynesian waters down there. And we'd get a fax like every night with just kind of like a type up from USA Today on the headlines. And I remember about five days into the honeymoon, the fax comes across the table and then placed under our door. And as I woke up in the morning, I remember the headline it said, Flutie, Gerback, Leaf, Doug Flutie, the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, Elvis Gerback, the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, and Leaf all released. That's how I found out I was cut by the San Diego Chargers. And I looked at my then wife, Nikki, and we 
We erupted in excitement. We ordered bottles of champagne. It was a fucking celebration, baby. All right? And then what happens when you're a veteran, you go on the waiver wire. And usually somebody with my history and how poorly I performed and everything, there's no way I don't clear waivers and become an unrestricted free agent. And, but for some reason, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tony Dungy claimed my contract. When you get picked up on waivers, they take your contract. That was huge, right? There was $15 million left on that contract. So it was significant for them to claim me off waivers. And I just was so excited for like a new opportunity for a fresh start. I looked at my then wife and said, hey, I got to get to Tampa. And we ended our honeymoon, you know, it was supposed to be a 10-day trip. We ended it, you know, four days early. Flew home early. I flew down to Tampa, met my whole new teammates. And I just was like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. This was the coach I've been looking for. This is the team I've been looking for. They were very good defensively. They were really good. And this is where my career finally takes off and where I get to be the quarterback that everybody expected me to be. I thought this was the fresh start that I'd been looking for, been searching for. But what had transpired in San Diego was a anchor, the behavioral side of it, but now the physical side of it. I had wrecked my wrist. The doctor said that I would have to be fused to actually fix it. And by fusing it, my range of motion would be so limited I couldn't play quarterback. So now I had to deal with the pain, the inaccuracy, the unknowing of of where it was going to go. And I was not the same quarterback. Like, there's one thing, right? The one thing that got me past and got me through all the shit that, that I behaved like for years was my talent. No matter what, I could go out and fire that some bitch around. That's what I was good at. Because no matter how many people looked at me like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? All of a sudden, I would stand out on the football field and fire it from one sideline to the other on a line, on a frozen rope, and everybody would go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why. That's what he can do. I couldn't do it anymore. Side note on that Tampa Bay season, Tony Dungy would get his team and put a roster together that would ultimately win the Super Bowl after he was fired the next year. John Gruden slid into that spot. The Super Bowl was in San Diego. All my old teammates were there. I spent time with them all week. Wasn't talented enough to make the team in Tampa. And when I wouldn't take a pay cut, I was shipped off and ultimately signed with Dallas. That's where I would actually get to play some more because Jerry Jones wanted the chance of a first-round quarterback becoming the franchise again like he had in Troy Aikman years before. Uh, my wrist was a problem. I, too, was not very good. I mean, there, there, there becomes a point where you just become what everybody sees you as, and that it was just a shit-performing quarterback, too, right? The talent had dissipated. The season ended in Dallas, and I was traded to the Seattle Seahawks. And I, again, thought it was another opportunity, right? Mike Holmgren, I never truly thought that my limitations with my wrist would stop me from possibly being the starting quarterback there. Trent Dilfer was there, Matt Hasselback, and some some quarterbacks that were taken late in rounds to compete for the third position, and that's who I was going to compete with. You know, there'd be flashes in practice, like, oh, wow, that, yeah, that's the first-round pick, and then the rest is just like, you know, my wrist would dislocate, the ball would fly out, and 
I'd lose control, and I, I liked Seattle. I liked the staff. I liked Mike Holmgren. I just didn't like not being the guy. Right? I'd always been the starting quarterback, and if I wasn't going to be the starting quarterback, what was the point? And I had also really started to formulate that there was something wrong with me mentally because I couldn't get out of bed. I felt lazy. I felt sad all the time. I was incredibly overweight heading into training camp. And, of course, in your contract, it stipulates that you're supposed to report it a certain weight. If not, you're going to be fined. And I just the embarrassment of that and the idea that I was not going to be the starting quarterback made me contemplate whether I was done with this or whether I wanted to be just be done with it. I didn't have to worry about anything anymore. And instead of walking into Holmgren's office and telling him all those things, right, telling him that I was sad all the time, that I couldn't get out of bed, that I felt lazy and I need help, I just called him on the phone and said I quit. I'd wanted to do this since I was four years old and I just quit after four years in the NFL. I just assumed that I could go on with my life because the pillars of success or the ideals that I thought were success, money, power, and prestige were still there. The prestige of maybe tarnished a little bit because I hadn't succeeded incredibly at the NFL level, but it's still, it's everything that every one of my peers had ever wanted or anybody would ever want. So I could just walk away. But when you're drafted alongside arguably the greatest quarterback to ever play the game and the expectations that existed for you were so big and the fashion in which you went out in a blaze of glory and how you crashed and burned doesn't allow for you just to walk away. Every April, my name will be brought up forever. I'm regarded as one of the greatest draft busts ever. And just like that, football was over. What do I do now?